Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So what you're going to listen to today is a conversation that I had on a very rainy night in Hartford with Adrian McKinty, who's from Northern Ireland. And he is a wonderful, wonderful writer of mysteries, particularly two series of mysteries that I've gotten pretty addicted to. I don't know. He's not your typical mystery writer. There's a way in which he's overeducated and esoteric. And I don't know. He's a lot of the things that people say about this show. Very eclectic. Doesn't stay on one point for very long. Lots of digressions, but also lots of excitement. So I I did something I never do. I kind of reached out to him and said, hey, I like your work. You want to come talk to me? And he said, yeah, which is the first time that's ever happened, too. So that's what you're about to hear right after this. Okay, so you're about to hear something that happened a little while back where on a very, very rainy night, first of all, a lot of people came out. I thought maybe just we would be sitting on stage all by ourselves and there'd be nobody in the audience. It was really terrible weather and lots of thunder and lightning. But a bunch of people came to the Twain House to see me talk to Adrian McKinty. Adrian McKinty is a detective fiction writer and a writer of thrillers. I know him most and love him most for the Sean Duffy series. These are detective stories about a Catholic detective in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And the Michael Forsyth novels, Michael Forsyth is a guy who emigrated to America from Northern Ireland and is kind of unkillable, unbleeping killable, I think they refer to him as. And that's sort of combined with a lot of people for various reasons wanting to kill him all the time. So... (laughs) It's way more entertaining than I just made that sound. Anyway, you're going to hear the conversation that Adrian and I had on that particular night with that particular crowd. So we're going to begin. Most authors, and I've interviewed a lot of authors, have life stories that are not that interesting. You know, there's the rare Salman Rushdie, you know. Uh, There's a few people who've had interesting things happen. I'm so relieved my life isn't as interesting as Salman Rushdie. But your life is uncustomarily really interesting. And I thought maybe we would begin with you, and then we'll go to the writing. And I thought we would begin with what I think I have identified with my meticulous research as two crises of confidence about novels. And the first one according to the detectives I hired to follow you around, happens when you're 16. When you're 16 years old, you have a moment where you think, novels, not so great. Tell them about that. Well, I was in high school, and when you're in Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, you do your Mm A-levels. And it's one of the biggest decisions you'll ever have to make in your life because you're basically deciding your entire future in about two days of career day. And you get to pick what subjects you want to do for your A-levels. And so I go to my English teacher and say to my English teacher, you know, I think I'd really like to do English as my A-level. And uh, she says to me, I wouldn't do that if I were you because you have no talent for (laughs) interpreting English literature, for reading English literature. So I decided that fiction wasn't for me. Novels weren't for me. English literature wasn't for me. And my dad was an engineer. So I thought, oh, 
you got to go into the hard sciences. So I did math and physics, and that was that was going to be my career path. But there was a big problem, and the problem was that I was terrible at math, and even worse at physics. So I left school with no clue whatsoever what I was going to do with my life. But what? But I also have in mind, due to my meticulous research, was there was a ceremony. You kind of went Ray Bradbury. Fahrenheit 451 on novels. You got mad at them because of the way that they were written and a kind of inherent elitism. And so you, you had a little ceremony. That's, that's also true. I remember doing a bonfire of all my materials. If they're not going to let me study these English literature, I'm just going to burn them all. And I also felt no kinship with the stuff that the Irish school system was trying to make me learn. I don't think we did one 20th century book. I think it was all stuff from like the 18th century. I think Tom Jones was the most recent novel we got to do. I think we were really lucky if we got to read a 600-page uh, Anthony Trollope. That was a field day, and I just thought, this isn't for me. But it also went a little bit further than that because the books that were being heralded in the Sunday papers as the great books that you supposedly want to read... That was the era of those awful, awful Hampstead novels. And they were saying, this is the, the finest English literature of our time, was written by all these upper middle class people who lived in Hampstead, and they were all having affairs with one another, and then writing these ghastly novels about it. And I just thought, well, if this is English literature, it's got not, as Morrissey would say, it had nothing to do with me or my life. So I just thought, this is, this is not my milieu. It's not my world. I, I, I'm done. Right. So yeah, there was a way, I think, in which you could also stretch this out over centuries. You know, Shakespeare has his rude mechanicals. There's a way in which people who were not of a certain status, a certain level, a certain level of education, a certain class, are less interesting and have less complicated thoughts. Well, that's also what they say about Shakespeare as well, because um, the, the anti-Shakespeare and the anti-Stratfordians refused to believe that a kid who just went to grammar school or Latin school could possibly have written these complicated, psychologically astute plays about kings and queens. I think there's a real class dimension to the to the people who don't like the, the boy from Stratford. Right. So we should say, you grew up in North Belfast, working class. Your father worked at least, an apprentice, I just found out in the lobby, for Harlot and Wolf, mm -hmm. very famous shipbuilding company. Say a little bit more about that, how it shaped you. Well, as you say, I, I grew up working class in a, um, what we'd call a housing project over here or there, they would call it just council housing. Mm -hmm. And it was basically just a, a lot of houses on, on a street. And I remember it being, there's this wonderful bit in Kenneth Branagh's film, Belfast. There's a wonderful bit at the beginning where the kid lives on the street and everybody knows him. And he knows everybody. And that was basically my childhood. Mm -hmm. Hiya, buddy. Hello, Mrs. Ford. Have you been fighting any dragons? Only a couple. I got a couple in my house. Is that right, Mr. West? Hi. And can you lend us a shield, buddy? I'll see what I can do. Say hello to your daddy for me, will you? Will do. Buddy, your mom's calling you for your tea. Thanks, Mrs. Kavanagh. She says it's tripe and onions. She did not. In a sandwich. She did not. She says you're a terrible man. <laughs> She's right. 
I knew everybody in the street, everybody knew me, and my grandparents were nearby, and I had aunts and uncles and cousins, and it was very idyllic until about the mid-70s. And then I was still very young, and then the troubles really kicked off, and there was a lot of bombings and shootings, but the really devastating thing was I lived just outside Belfast, the small town called Carrickfergus, and the three main employers that were in the town, ICI, Cordalds, and this other factory, they all closed within 16 months, and suddenly this idyllic world was shattered because nobody had a job. And so unemployment was about 90%, and suddenly everyone started leaving. And so people would just emigrate to Canada or to England, like Branagh's family does in, in the movie, they, they left. And at the end of Branagh's movie, he has this little dedication. It's for, for the people who left and for those who stayed behind. And uh, we were the ones who stayed behind. And I was always saying to my mom, how come we can't move to America or Canada? We have to stay here. And so the, sort of, it, was, it was idyllic, and then hard reality came, came crashing in. So from there, you steer a very natural course to Oxford. <laughs> right. I, I was thinking about this the other day. Somebody jokingly said to me when I was in my 20s, about a third of the boys in our class either became terrorist policemen or the guys that gave out unemployment checks. That was your career path. And I didn't do any of that because I found refuge in the local library. And I just fell in love with books and literature and reading. And despite my English teacher's anger and my attempts at writing, I loved, I loved that world. I loved going to the library. I loved reading. I loved writing. In fact, when I was, I think it was about 11, I wrote to my very first author, and that was Ursula Le Guin, who was living in Portland. Mm -hmm. And incredibly, she wrote me back. And I had all these questions about how the magic worked in the Earthsea trilogy. And she didn't answer any of them, but <laughs> she wrote a very encouraging letter back. And uh, that, I still have that, that, that letter. I want to stay with your life story a little bit more, but... As long as we're here, was there a certain aha moment where maybe in you don't write exclusively de detective fiction, we know that, but where you thought, oh, yeah, I could imagine writing stories like that one. Were there authors or an author where you went, oh, Raymond Chandler, sure, Gimlet's, I could do that. It didn't happen like that because... Like, I was a working-class kid from the streets, mm -hmm. and the writers you saw on TV were very, very posh. <laughs> they all had terribly posh accents. They all lived in London, and they were all immaculately dressed, and they were talking about this highfalutin stuff. So uh, the idea of... Were you in, like, in the Martin Amos teeth era? Or yes, it was, okay. the Mar right. it, it was Martin Amos. Uh, it was Julian Barnes. It was those kinds of people. Kingsley Amos, it was a little bit more yeah. uh, approachable. But those kind of people, and it just seemed... To completely different realm. And even the writers from Dublin who were famous back then, like John Banville and stuff like that, mm. he's quite posh too mm -hmm. and quite worldly. So I just never envisaged myself ever being able to write a book or go into a publishing house or anything like that. So you get out of Oxford and actually you wind up doing some pretty hard jobs after that, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 I applied to Oxford and again, I had no clue what to do with one's life. So I studied philosophy so the, 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 I met a girl 
This, I was in my final year of my degree at Oxford, and I'd studied with the finest philosophers in the world. So I was really fit for no career known to man. And I met this girl, and she was on her junior year abroad from America. And I said, look, I'm finishing up. And I knew she was going back to New York City. And I said to her, is there any way I could come back to New York with you and sleep on your couch and work in New York? And she was incredibly skeptical about <laughs> this idea. And she said, what? You're going you're gonna to live in my apartment and sleep on my couch and get a job? And I, and she's, and I said, yeah. And she said, doing what? And I said, well, I'm Irish, so I can probably work in a bar. And, 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 and truth was, I remember, and I'll never forget this, I arrived in New York City on a Wednesday. And by that Saturday night, I was pulling pints in a bar in the Bronx. And my job interview, I, I was just walking around lots of bars in, in, in the Bronx, Irish bars. My job interview went like this. Uh, I'm looking for work, and, he, and the barman says, where are you from? I says, I'm, I'm from Belfast, and he said, well, look, can you start Saturday? <laughs> and I said, yes, and then as I'm leaving the bar, Colombo fashion, he says to me, you do know how to pour a pint of Guinness, don't you? And I go, of course, of course I do, every Irish man knows how to pour a pint of Guinness. And then as soon as I got home, I was on the phone to my friend, Noel McKee, and I said, Noel, how do you pour a pint of Guinness? And he goes, oh, Adrian, I couldn't tell you over the phone. It's, uh, it's an art. It's not a science. Uh, it's a three-step process. Right? Yes. It's a, it's a th so he talked me into being able to pour a pint of Guinness, and I filled them. Right. And, and speaking of following a woman someplace, so the, if you read the new book, it opens in Israel, and I think that's you're with her on her Fulbright there. Yeah, right? that's yeah. right. I... I, I the couch lady I ended up marrying, so don't think I was just a, a grifter. I ended that's her, up that's her Navajo name is Couch Lady. Yes, actually... I, I ended up marrying her, and I followed her to. Um, she got a Fulbright to go and study in Israel, so I followed her to Israel, and then she got a job in Denver, and I followed her to Denver, and then she got a job in Australia, and I followed her to Australia, and then she moved back to New York City again, so I followed her back to New York City. All right, so I said there were going to be two crises of confidence. One of them is you're so pissed off at the English novel, you're burning them as a 16-year-old, as 16-year-olds will do. The other one, I think, is you start writing these novels, and they're wonderful, and they win prizes. They win lots of prizes, and people like me discover them and love them. But they are not, in fact, earning you enough money to live on. So no. at some point, you're in Australia, I believe it's 2017, and you have another crisis. Talk about that. Well, well let me backpedal a little bit. Yeah. So my first book comes out in 2003, and it doesn't sell well, but it gets well-reviewed. It's mm. one of those. Uh, <laughs> it gets critically reviewed. I've written books that did neither, so, you right. know. Right, so, and I get asked to come in in about 2005, 2006, to pitch a, a TV show to the BBC. They've read the reviews and said, this young man's going places. So I go in there and I pitch this TV show set in Belfast in the 1970s. Because my idea is the 70s are coming back. This is like 2005, 2006. And we, we set a show in Belfast and it's 70s clothes, 70s fashions, and also it, make it a 70s cop show. 
So, because I love 70s cop shows. Starsky and Hutch and Kojak and all the best shows. It's Columbo. All the best shows are 70s cop shows. So um, I pitched this to the BBC and then they're aghast and incredulous. And they say, you want to set a show in Northern Ireland during the Troubles? And they said, don't you realize that no one's interested in the Troubles? No one's interested in Northern Ireland. We can't possibly sell this show to anyone in England. We, there's no way we can sell it to anybody in the Irish Republic because they were, for 25 years, they were just ignoring everything that was happening up there, pretending and hoping it would go away. And he says, and forget trying to sell this show to America. They still think it's the 1950s and it's the quiet man over there. So it, it, there's just no chance. And then the, as I was, I got, when the guys took me to the pub, they rejected my TV show and they said, look, if I were you, I'd go to Foyle's famous London bookstore and I would look up the, the Northern Irish crime fiction section when you, got, when you get there. So I go into Foyle's after the pub and I go up to the second floor of the crime fiction section and there's a Danish crime fiction section. There's a Swedish crime fiction section. There's a Norwegian, there's an Icelandic crime fiction section. No one lives in Iceland. And there's a separate section in the Icelandic section for Reykjavik. Whole shelf of crime fiction novels just set in Reykjavik, which is a smaller population than Hartford. And then I get to the Irish crime fiction section, which is four inches thick, and it's all Tana French books. And then I get to the Northern Irish crime fiction section, which is one book. And it's this by this guy called Owen McNamee. And I go, okay. Adrian, I get the message here. Whatever you write about for the rest of your life, don't write about Northern Ireland. So I avoided the subject for the next six years. But then finally, I had tremendous writer's block. I'm living in Australia. And I started writing this book, which was set during one of the hunger strike riots in 1981. And I wrote this first page set in Belfast. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in big trouble here. This is set in Northern Ireland. And they told me never to set anything in Northern Ireland, and especially not during the Troubles. And I thought, well, maybe if I keep writing it, the action will shift to England. So I kept writing it. And by page 20, it was still set in Belfast. By page 100, it was still set in Belfast. And by the end of the book, it had never left Belfast in 1981. And I sent it, and I'd been warned about this, and I sent it to my American publishers who promptly rejected it. But I sent it to British publishers who accepted it for publication, and it got the best reviews of my career. And I wrote another one set there in Belfast in the, in the 80s, and it started, it got shortlisted for the Edgar Award, and then I'd set another one there, and it won the Edgar Award, and as you say, the crisis came about five or six books into the series where I was being feted as this up-and-coming, quote, brilliant crime writer who was winning all these awards. But then I was getting, and I was getting, just getting fantastic reviews and winning tons of prizes and going to literary events and stuff like that. But then I would get these royalty checks and I'd sold about 2,000 copies, and you get about a dollar a book. So I was making about $2,000 a year. And my wife is working full-time as a teacher and raising our kids. And meanwhile, I'm flying, they would fly you off to these literary events, 
And and here, everybody, it's Adrian McKinty, and all these you know people will greet you. And I felt like such a fraud because I remember my dad when he got laid off from work. He had five kids to raise, and he immediately got took three part-time jobs, and was provide. And he would it would never have occurred to him in a million years not to provide for his family. And here I was flying all over these worlds, these literary events, and contributing nothing, nothing to the family. And I never earned enough in federal taxes in Australia to actually pay tax. At least that's my story. And <laughs> so I decided that I was going to quit writing. And for the first few years that I'd been a writer, I'd also been a school teacher. So I decided I was going to quit writing and I was going to get part-time jobs. And I was going to go back to working in a bar and dr driving my car as an Uber and I was going to take a break from writing for a few years to actually earn an honest living and put bread and sustenance on the table for my family. So I did a brief announcement on my blog that I was quitting writing and um, for a while. But Don Winslow becomes aware of this. Don Winslow, who actually has also decided, no, he's not writing any more novels, right. but for a different reason. But he just, he, this is something up with which he will not put. He will not put up with you. No. So I'm living in Melbourne, and I'm now working in a bar, and I've quit writing, and I'm driving my car purely as an Uber driver. I mean, you do not want me as your Uber driver, because um, I'm not a good driver. I learned to drive in Ireland, where there's no other cars on the road. Occasionally, you would encounter a cow, and you slow down and you drive around the cow. So I'm terrified driving in traffic. I always have been. And so I was a very, very bad, nervous Uber driver. And I almost felt so sorry for anybody that got a ride with me. Why aren't we taking the expressway? Because oh, I'm too scared to take the expressway. So I, I'm working as an Uber driver, working in a bar, and I get this phone call from Don Winslow. I don't even know how he's got my number, but he calls me up and says, what's this about you quitting writing? And I explained the whole situation to me. And he said, look, I've been a fan of your books for years. And your problem isn't your writing. The problem is the marketing. I'm going to put you in touch with my agent. So he puts me in touch with his agent, who's a super agent, as we call them, Shane Salerno. And then he calls me up about three weeks later. And he spent the last three weeks reading all my books. And he says exactly the same thing. He said, Adrian, the problem's not with your writing. The problem is with your marketing. And he says, have you ever had a crazy idea for a book that you've always wanted to write. It's just this insane concept that you could write. And now, before we get to that, yeah. was it not the case that a couple of times you hung up on him? Oh, yeah. Um, because, well, he called me at midnight. Yeah. And I just came in from a, re I can't remember, it was a really hard day. Didn't somebody get sick in your Uber? Was yes, that that I, I, th I think, I think that, that was, um, I remember hosing down the car. And it had been a really long, complicated, hard day. And he calls me up. And he's calling from Hollywood. He says, hi there, this is uh, Shane Salerno. I'm calling from Hollywood, California. He goes, oh, really? Click. <laughs> <laughs> and then he calls me up again, and he says, Adrian, Adrian, Ian, I'm Don Winslow's friend. I'm calling from Hollywood, California. And he does this whole speech. And I go, oh, oh mate, you've, you've, you've reached me at a really bad time. I've quit writing. I'm taking a hiatus from writing for a couple of years. And, and he starts pitching me this whole thing that, that Don is saying about the marketing and the book. And I just go, hey, I, I don't offend you or anything, but I'm going to hang up the phone now and I'm going to go to bed. And so I hung up the phone a second time. 
And then I'm walking up the stairs to go to bed. It's about 12.30 at night. And he calls me up a third time. And as we all know, the Torah says that if someone tries three times, you have to listen to them. So I, I heard his pitch. And then he gives me that thing. He says, there's your book you've always wanted to write. And I said, look, I've got this idea for a book called The Chain. And I describe him the plot of the train. It's about a serial kidnapping scheme. And a woman has to kidnap someone else's child to get her child back. And there's this stony silence down the phone. And he goes, that's it. That's the one. I said, send that to me immediately. And I said, send you what? And he said, send me the, the chapters, the outline, whatever you've got. And I said, oh, there's nothing. It's just, it, it, it's all in my head. And, and he says, all right, uh, what are you doing right now? And I go, well, it was a quarter to one. And I said, going to bed? And he says, no, no, no. Sleep is so overrated. Don't go to bed. Open up your laptop and write me a couple of pages. And uh, so he's a very persuasive man. So at one o'clock in the morning, I found myself opening up my laptop and writing the words, The Chain by Adrian McKinty, chapter one. And you probably know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you get in the flow state. Mm -hmm. Rarely happens to me, but it happened to me this particular night. I got in flow state. And before I really knew what happened, I'd written the first 35 pages of, of the book. Uh, which are, if you ever read The Chain, those are the 35 pages as is. It was basically unedited. It was those 35 pages that are in the book now. And I sent them to Shane. And then I got to my wife and she's, what was all that yelling downstairs? Because apparently I'd been yelling at some point. Stop calling me. Um, I'm trying to go to bed. Do you know what time it is here? Things like that. And I said, oh, it's this American agent. Don Winslow's best friend. And he's calling me. And the phone rings, and it's, it's Shane. It's like quarter to four now. And he says, oh, Adrian, I just read those 30 pages. He says, all we need is 300 more, just like that. And he hangs up the phone. <laughs> and as you say, they're absolutely right. That's the book that turned around my, 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 my entire career. Big hit, international success, offered by Paramount. All right, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, we're back. And also back is Adrian McKinty, except that all of this happened a few days ago when we were at the Twain House talking about Sean Duffy, his amazing detective, the heart of his longest detective series, and Michael Forsyth, who I talked about at the beginning of the show, who's part of a trilogy. A new book, The Detective Up Late, is a Sean Duffy book. It takes its title from a Tom Waits song. McKinty is obsessed with music, which you will 
you're us talk about. And so here we go. We're back to Adrian McKinty. So I want to talk about the Sean books and the Michael For I'm actually almost more of a Michael Forsyth guy than I am a Sean guy, but this book tipped me in the other column. But we'll talk about both of them. Sure. I, I want to first of all say that I think it's one of your publishers, a fellow named Dan Mayer of Seventh Street Books, said that you're actually in some ways you kind of write historical mysteries in the sense that you are capturing a moment. You're capturing a time. We're up to 1990 in this book, but yeah. this, this, this has been about a time that's bygone now right. that you are trying to bring alive. Unlike a lot of historical novels, you don't have to look this stuff up. You live through some mm -hmm. of it. But could you say a little bit more about that, about the whole idea of bringing Belfast during the Troubles to well, life on the page? Well, I mean, the fiction I really grew up loving as a fan just was noir. I fell in love with Raymond Chandler's novels and Dashiell Hammett's novels and James M. Cain's novels. And I just loved the idea of, especially if you look at the films, it's, it's always raining in Los Angeles. I'm not entirely sure when they filmed these, like that three weeks a year when it rains, it, they were always set there. And people are walking around in trench coats and it's raining and it's Los Angeles. And I just loved the mood and the tone of those novels. And I just fell in love with noir. And I knew that if I ever was going to write a novel, it would be noir. Because noir is all about... I, mean, I, I write two types of books now. I write thrillers and I write noirs. And thrillers, it's all about turning the pages. It's got to be a propulsive story and the pages have to turn, and every page has to either develop character or turn a wheel of the story. But noirs aren't like that at all. In noirs, it's more about mood and tone and atmosphere. And when I finally decided to set these books in Belfast, I knew that I, I was on a winner because the mood and the tone and the atmosphere was fantastic. Because it's always raining, it's always winter, the food's terrible, there's all this this great 70s and 80s music everywhere. Everybody's listening to the radio, which is all true. Everybody's listening to the radio. And then there's army tanks rumbling through the streets. And then there's ordinary policemen trying to solve ordinary crimes against the backdrop of this civil war taking place in, in Belfast in the 1980s. And it was such an incredibly good backdrop I was amazed that no one had ever really done detective fiction set there, and they hadn't. And I thought, oh my God, this is this is just too good an opportunity not to not not to use. And I and I thought that way through six books until I realized nobody was actually buying them. But I fell in love with the concept. I do think things have changed even beyond the the McKinty verse. I mean, I don't think it's four inches anymore. I think it's uh, the oh, yeah. it's the milkman. Mm -hmm. and for nonfiction, we have we've had say nothing. There's a way in which I think for a long time, particularly in the American imagination, Northern Ireland was a sort of lost land. Yeah, people understood there was a place called Ireland. People understood there was a place called England. They might have been able to imagine that there was a place called Scotland. But Northern Ireland, other than the Troubles, didn't really exist. And you know, in in the American imagination, and I think that has changed pretty radically. Yeah, in the last, just in the last five years. Yeah. Um, Dairy Girls has been a huge change and Milkman winning the Booker Prize. And I wrote the Irish Times review, I think it was the ver very first review of Milkman that went on to win the Booker Prize. And I wrote the review of it. And at the end of my review, I had the sentence, it's just a shame no one's ever going to read this book because it's so good. And my editor cut it and he says, oh no, you're just going to make the writer depressed. <laughs> 
you can't, you can't say that to her because otherwise it's such a lovely review. It, it was a lovely review because I loved the book so much. And then it won the Booker Prize. And then Dairy Girls comes out. And then Say Nothing comes out. And then some, and then all the, all the while in the background, Game of Thrones is percolating and being shot in Belfast. And all these Hollywood actors are going to Belfast and talking about how great Belfast is. And so suddenly people are interested in Belfast. And then you know another crime writer pops up over here and another one over here. And, and finally we start getting some women crime writers, which we'd never had before. And so Belfast becomes this place that people want to read about. And to me, I mean, I think it's much more interesting than Scandi Noir because we've got all the darkness, all the dureness of Scandinavia, plus jokes, uh, <laughs> which they don't have. Have you ever watched any of those Scandi dramas on Netflix? Four hours Wallen between anybody... Wallander, not a million lines. Yes, between anybody smiling. Yeah. Um, they get those lines through their O's. I don't like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I want to yes. talk about Sean. And I feel like I was getting to know a slightly different Sean in this book. Obviously, he's changed his life mm -hmm. quite a bit. He's married a teacher of all things. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a daughter now. <laughs> and no spoilers, don't we? We won't do spoilers. We haven't read the book yet. But he's, from the beginning, he's easing out, basically, uh, yeah. of, his, of his job. He's not going to be a detective too much longer. And I think that's making him kind of reflective about what detectives do. And I was intrigued. I know you're kind of a Borges guy, and there's a Borges quote at the yeah. beginning of the book. And I was looking at Borges talking about detectives, and he says, I would say in defense of the detective novel that it needs no defense, though now read with a certain disdain. It is safeguarding order in an era of disorder. That is a feat for which we should be grateful. And Sean, I think there's a little shout out to Borges. Yeah. He says something like that, right? That he's he feels like the detective is holding back the tide of chaos. Yeah, the, it, like Sean sees himself in a sea of entropy and disorder and chaos, as you would in Belfast in the 1980s. But Sean, it feels like a, a, a copper is at least trying to solve one case, find one missing person, just to do something to, to hold back the, the the darkness and and reverse it. And he knows it's he knows it's 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 basically doomed, mm. but you're still going to try, you yeah. know. So I think that's really important. So I'm going to go through some other quick stuff. We've got to talk about music and Sean. I feel like I'm a music nerd and I know a lot of music. But reading a McKinty book, and particularly a Sean Duffy book, first of all, the dumbest thing you can do is what I did, which is, which is start pulling the music up on your phone. You know, I've got a title as my streaming service. At the end, I'm listening to the score to Ron. It's great. Which is great. <laughs> but I've, I've zigged and zagged quite a, I mean, he's... I don't know if he's you, if he's you, but he is so voracious and such an omnivore musically, and music is just a constant thing we're talking about. Well, uh, I remember, I mean, as a child, in Ireland, you're, you have to have a party piece, and everybody has to be able to play an instrument or sing or do something. Because this is, this, is, this is a tradition that started before TV, before radio. And so we were encouraged to, every, well, everybody was encouraged to learn a musical instrument. So it's piano and. So, you know, violin or guitar or whatever. My brother was a trombone. My two sisters were violinists. Uh, so everybody had, had to learn a, a musical instrument. So certainly when I was growing up in my house, music was everywhere. And on the street, it was everywhere. And the musical things were, there was country music that was coming from the radio. So that was, that was huge. 
Irish traditional folk music. My dad was listening to lots of classical music. My sister Diane was listening to lots of classical music. And just from all the windows, you would hear Frank Sinatra and just everywhere there was apps just filled with music everywhere. And as a kid, the popular music we heard was top 40. But my brother was this big weirdo hipster, my older brother. And he had this seat room that no one was allowed to go into where he had all these albums. And he used to listen to them with his headphones on. And um, so we, we only knew top 40 acts and stuff like that. And then when he went off to college, he said, you can't go into my room and don't ever touch my records. So me and my little brother waited and we just watched as the car pulled out down. And then we, of course, we broke into his room, and this, this, that was my first experience hearing like Led Zeppelin and UFO and Black Sabbath. I remember putting on Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin and turning to my little brother and just, is this good? And he was going, I don't know. <laughs> Let's put on another record. So it was like hundreds of these. It was my first experience listening to Miles Davis. I was listening to blues and jazz and stuff for the first time. So all these musical influences everywhere. And I don't think Shauna's unique, and I don't think I was unique. I think it's just the, the condition of, of being alive at that time. Sean is unique. He's got 4,500 albums. And there's one of the books, I think it was maybe the one before this one, which opens with Sean, he's in a big factory, abandoned factory, and someone is shooting at him with a shotgun. And he's got a, a little note pattern stuck in his head that he thinks sounds like Arvo Pear. Arvo Pear is a kind of a living modernist Estonian composer, um, you yeah. know. But it's not that, and he's trying to resolve it. I think it turns out to be Sansen. He figures it out later. It's the Carnival of the Animals. Okay. The Aquarium, which is an extraordinary piece of music. Yeah. And originally, this is a little bit nerdy, but originally recorded or supposed to be played on a glass harmonica. If you've ever seen one of those instruments, so strange. Uh, now played basically on harp and, and, and things like that. But yeah. Uh, There's just music all the time. I'm very happy about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not complaining at all, but it is, it's so present all the time. I can't think of another writer who's been particularly as just cross, cross discipline, genre, everything. So, speaking of sound, I want to talk about audiobooks. If you're kind of new to McKinty, I would recommend reading about half of them and listening to Gerard Doyle. Yeah, Doyle's great. The other half. I mean, to me, the vo I now have the voice of Forsyth and Duffy in my head, and, and it's him. Maybe talk a little bit about that. What that I mean, how much work do you do with oh well, quite, quite a lot. When I finish a book, I send it off to Doyle. Well, usually... I mean, you get it edited and copy edited, and then I used to send it to Gerald Doyle, my audiobook narrator, and then he asked me about place names. There's a lot of weirdo Northern Irish place names. And I found out early in the recording process, there's an Irish place name, and it's A-H-O-G-H-I-L-L, -L, and it's pronounced a hochel. <laughs> and I found out that he couldn't do that. So a hochel has appeared in every book since. <laughs> How do you see the name of the hill at the end of this book that begins with a U? Oh, uh, the Stone of Divisions? Yeah, yeah. I think it's Uskada. Yeah, it's nothing like it's spelled, right? Right, it's nothing like it. Well, I mean, I, I, I always remember when the substitute teacher would come into your class in school, and the substitute teacher would always go, is Sioban here? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and what about Nyama? 
So per Persevon and Neve were going, yes, we're here. I, I have to tell you a, a quick audiobook story that's about an act of perfidy committed by a person who's sitting in this room. We're leaving Montreal, the woman I love, and I look at her, she's ducking her head down already. And we, we put on, in the car, Dead I Will May Be, which is that first 2003 Michael Forsyth mm -hmm. book. And so we listen to it all the way home. And then we get home, and actually we sit in the dark in the living room listening a little bit more, but they're in the prison in Mexico. Oh, yeah. This kind of stuff. And it's getting really, really hairy. And we're thinking, when can we... We're not going to be in a car for lots and lots of hours. Like, how are we going to finish this? And I, I don't know the answer to this. And a few days later, I bring it up, and she says, oh, I had to drive to New York, so I listened to the rest of it. And I said, you did what? You cheated on me? <laughs> With Adrian McKinty? Um, I mean, you don't do that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that prison scene. We were in, my wife and I, which may still be my girlfriend then, but we were in Mexico, and we drove past this prison in the Yucatan, and we just stopped, I said, you got to stop the car. And we stopped the car, and I just said, this prison is fantastic. And it was the worst place in the world. It was like carved out of the jungle, and it was really medieval. And I just said, look at this, this is great. And it was so, and I said, can you imagine being like a tourist and committing some crime in Yucatan and ending up in this place? And once you've said that, that there's your book. The rest of the book writes itself. And you just think, well, why would an Irish tourist be in Yucatan and how, what crime would be serious enough that they would end up in this prison? And some, sometimes you get a bit of luck like that and the book just writes itself. So I, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about this. So first of all, he has a very robust presence on something that used to be called Twitter, but is now X. And on X, which sounds weird even to say. Yeah, it does. Um, it doesn't scan. One of the things that comes alive is just your incredible love of poetry, your passion about poetry, which is probably not the case with every detective novel writer. And it's not just you love Yeats, right? It's you, it can get pretty recherche. There's a lot of, but can you say a little bit about that, what that means to you, how you use poetry in your life? Well, again, if you're Irish and you grew up in the 70s and 80s and you were into, into poetry at all, you got, we were really lucky because Seamus Heaney was everywhere in that period. And I was lucky enough to go to Oxford at the time when he was the professor of poetry there. And so I grew up, and also I knew Seamus Heaney through about four different connections. My little brother's girlfriend used to live next door to the Heaney's. My sister went to teacher's training college with his brother. But everybody in Northern Ireland knows everybody anyway. <laughs> but, but just, I'm like, I have like six different connections to Liam Neeson. Like all connections like that. So just in that world, poetry... It's always been something I've absolutely loved. And not just he, Yeats, and not just Heaney, and Paul Muldoon, and Derek Mann. And I, and I think we, we were really lucky to be growing up in an area where there were all these geniuses writing this incredible Irish poetry. Meeting in pubs where you lived. Yes, exactly. I mean, Heaney and Muldoon and Derek Mann and Kieran Carson were all just up the road writing world shattering these are future pulitzer prize winners and nobel prize winners and i guess that was the medium instead of detective fiction or fiction that people were using to express their anger and rage about about the troubles in the 70s and 80s and so i just grew up in a world where i i just fell in love with 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 poetry and again we weren't being taught any of this in school none of it 
And and then through that, I I, I guess the, the, my next biggest love was probably Philip Larkin. His poetry just knocked my socks. And I, I read Larkin like basically every couple of days. Mm-hmm. I'll read a Larkin poem because he I think he was the singular English genius after World War II. Most quiet, unassuming, and also a big weirdo. But just he was the one that his talent just dwarfed everybody else's. Right. Occasionally, I will quote the, the your mom and Doc. Yeah, we won't. Poem, we, won't we won't. We won't do, do that here. Every, but it, everybody it, knows that poem. Everybody knows that poem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you find writing prose? I mean, I'm not in your league writing prose, but I find writing prose when I'm stuck, when I just have no rhythm. I don't like reading poetry. I think absolutely it's a jump start. That's the thing. Whenever I got writer's block, listen to music or read poetry, and don't think about the book. Yeah. Don't think about the book, but read poetry or listen to music for an hour, and mysteriously the writer's block is gone, because it just unlocks something in in your brain, and and then all the juices start flowing. Well, the other thing, I mean, you obviously in your own life are intellectually also an omnivore about everything, and Sean is too, but there's a way in which I think you seem to be interested in everything. And for other people who are interested in a lot of things, it's very rewarding, I think, to go, oh, I think I know what he's talking about there. But I, I just figured out doing some of my research today that you're also kind of a Trekkie a little bit. I oh, think. I'm a huge Trekkie. You know there's like 840 hours of Star Trek? They've made like seven series. To catch up, if you started now and watched 12 hours a day, it would take you like five months to catch up. But I've seen all 840 hours <laughs> of Star Trek and some episodes multiple times. I found out that he likes a scene in one of the movies where Spock and Kirk are talking about profanity. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. You'll find it in all the literature of the period. For example, all the collected works of Jacqueline Suzanne. The novels are Harold Robbins. Ah, the giants. Absolutely. At Star Trek IV, they go back to Earth, and they're in this 1980s San Francisco, it makes me think of the transitory nature of literary fame and all other kinds of fame. When I was a kid, just all these writers who have absolutely disappeared, like Harold Robbins is a, one of them. You just never see any Harold Robbins books. And Alistair McLean, I remember every single bodega, corner shop, ironmongers, they just had a whole rack of Alistair McLean books, and now they're just vanished. No, no one can predict literary fame and, and, and how sometimes... Writers come back, sometimes writers disappear. It's just, it's absolutely not able to be. I remember, I, I love Christopher Hitchens' work, mm. but he, he said something really silly, and he said, you know, don't write for now, write for, the, write for posterity, write for the future. And I thought, well, there's no way you could ever know what anyone's going to like 100 years from now, 50 years from now. You just have no idea. It could be some obscure, out-of-print guy that gets it. Herman Melville was out-of-print, and, and completely unknown. And when he died, the New York Times spelled his name three different ways in his obituary because they didn't know who he was. Uh, another one of my favorites is, is Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick died in 1982. And again, his obituary was two paragraphs long in the New York Times. And now all 40 of his books are in print and he sells more than any other science fiction writer in the world. So you just, you just don't know what's going to happen. You never do know. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back after this.
All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. First of all, I want to thank the Mark Twain House and Jacques Lamar for going along with my idea. And I want to thank Jonathan McPants, who was there with us that night and who has edited all this stuff into some kind of semblance of sense. And I'm very excited also that uh, on that night, uh, Lily Tyson's parents were also there at the Mark Twain House, although they did not talk to me. And I'm very, very upset and in a lot of pain. And so this question from the audience was, since we're at the Twain House... What do you think of Mark Twain? Uh, I, I, you know, I just got the Mark Twain house tour, the individual private tour that no one else gets. But I, I was a huge fan of Mark Twain as a kid. I, I started with The Innocence Abroad, and I got into him through the travel writing because Innocence Abroad, I thought it was hilarious. I was just, I, I got in through all the the nonfiction first, and then I got in through through the fiction. But I, I still have a lot of affection for. Roughing it, innocence abroad. What's the one we? Is it following the equator where he goes? Um, yeah, just uh, that's the stuff I love. Just so funny. And innocence abroad is laugh out loud funny. I mean, people say, oh, nothing dates like humor. You know, stuff that was funny 50 years ago won't be funny now. And that's not true. It's hilarious still. I think the thing about Twain, too, that I think is true of a lot of funny people is he's funny all the time. Like, when he's not writing, when he's writing letters to William Dean Howells, he's very funny. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, I mean, he wasn't just performance. That's, like, who he was, I think. Yeah, there's a short story he wrote called A Short Story About George Washington's Boyhood. And he never actually gets to the short story about George Washington's boyhood because he talks about how he's trying to learn the accordion. <laughs> Have you ever read the Thurber piece where he talks about his, his time with D.H. Lawrence? And it, it, it's all these people that he met who, whom he mistook <laughs> for D.H. Lawrence and had these very inappropriate sexual conversations with them, <laughs> the, thinking that they were D.H. Lawrence. I, I love that kind of thing. Yeah, well, the Mark Twain accordion piece is so side-splittingly funny, especially for anybody who grew up with the sound of accordions in their life, which I did, unfortunately, because there was this thing in Belfast called the marching season, and they would march through the city on the 12th of July playing accordions. And so that was always my annual nightmare, was to hear the accordions and the bagpipes. See, I'm actually pro-accordion, but there's a famous Gary Larson cartoon which shows Satan saying, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Yes. And this second question is, this is a historical novel. It's kind of pre-technology. Is it easier to write a book set before the advent of smartphones and other kinds of technology like that? Yeah, it's so much easier. It's so much more fun. They have to go to the library to look up facts, which is wonderful before computers, before phones and everything. So all these coppers are tripsing into the library and asking the librarian for help, which is, it, it's wonderful. Like I remember finding out that you could call up the New York Public Library. This is the early 90s. You could call up the New York Public Library and ask them a question and they would go and find it out for you. And so that was the world before the internet. You would call up the New York Library and says, yeah, I was just wondering about the gross domestic product of Zambia. <laughs> and they just go, hold on. <laughs> and then they would come back two minutes later and they would tell you. So yes, it's so much more fun to write stuff without phones. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I think we have to stop there. But first of all, give yourselves a big hand for coming out on a rainy night. 
And then give him a big hand, Adrian McKenzie.